We continue in our series on Jesus and the Kingdom of God uh, from the Gospel of Luke for a couple more weeks here before Advent begins. And this morning, um, we're in a familiar passage uh, from Luke chapter 12, verses 13 and 34. So if you would follow along in your worship folder, this is God's words to us from Luke. Someone in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But Jesus said to him, Man, who made me a judge and arbitrator over you? And he said to them, Take care and be on your guard against covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man produced plentiful. And he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones, larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. And he said to his disciples, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on. For life is more than food and the body more than clothing. Consider the ravens. They neither sow nor reap. They have neither storehouses nor barn, and yet God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? And which of you, being anxious, can add a single hour to the span of his life? If then you are not able to do as a small thing as that, why are you anxious about the rest? Consider the lilies they, and how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, yet I tell you, even Solomon and all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass, which is alive in the field today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you? O you of little faith, and do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be worried, for all the nations of the world seek these things, and your Father knows that you need them. Instead, seek his kingdom, and these things will be added to you. Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, and with treasures in heaven's that do not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The word of the Lord. Pray with me. Lord, we ask that uh, you reveal to us as we reflect on your word where our treasures are. We pray for insight into our hearts, understanding, And we pray that we would um, learn and understand what it means to seek your kingdom and to be rich towards you, Lord. Wherever we find ourselves this morning, whether it's perhaps feeling far away from you or not belonging, help us to know that, that you want us, you desire us, and that you are always moving towards us and not away from us. So we pray you meet us this morning in your word and through your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. So Jesus tells us to seek the kingdom, 
Uh, do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be worried, for all the nations of the world seek after these things, and your Father knows that you need them. Instead, seek his kingdom, and these things will be added to you. So what is it? What is it that we are supposed to be seeking when we're seeking the kingdom of God? What does that mean to seek God's kingdom? That's really the question this morning. When Jesus calls us to seek his kingdom, what he's, what he's calling us to do is to, uh, to seek to align our lives with the invisible reality of his reign and rule. You remember what the kingdom of God is. The kingdom of God is, is uh, the, the ruling presence of God in the world. Um, you know, if you were to ask, uh, you know, most people, a lot of people believe in God and those who believe in God believe in the existence of God, uh, or rather the presence of God. But there's a, a difference between God's general presence, right? I know that God is presence, and a sense of God's presence in our midst as the Lord. It's one thing to be aware of God's presence in a general sense. It's another, it means something else to be a, aware of God's presence as the Lord. It's a, not possible to come into God's presence as the Lord and not be changed and not to think differently. And when I relate my life to God as the Lord, um, what I'm seeking to do here is ask this question, what would it mean for Jesus to be the Lord in all these areas of my life? What would it mean for the kingdom of God to come into my life in all these areas? What would it mean for the kingdom to come into my marriage? What would it mean for the kingdom to come into my, my parenting, into my workplace? into my hobbies, into my dispute with my neighbors or family? What would it mean for the kingdom to come into my life's aspirations? That is what it means to have, I think, to ask these questions, a kingdom of God spirituality. So that's what I want to explore this morning, uh, is kingdom of God spirituality. What does it mean for the kingdom to come into our lives in a full way? And I want to draw your attention to this text, and the question is, uh, the very first thing about a kingdom spirituality has to do with priorities, um, having the right priorities in life. This is really the overarching uh, theme of this whole passage. And the scene here is important. Uh, so Jesus is teaching to a large uh, group of people that is gathered together. And he's interrupted by a man. Someone in the crowd says to him, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. So uh, what goes uh, right ahead of this text that, that you, you might not be aware of is, uh, so Jesus is, there's, there's lots and lots of people. He's been teaching on what it means to, as a follower of him, to bear witness to, to him even when there's hostility in life. And he's also teaching on the, um, the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. These are weighty things. But the man seems to be in a different place, right? He's not thinking, he's not tracking with Jesus. Um, he's uh, thinking about his inheritance. And so in that moment, he interrupts Jesus, at, perhaps when there's a pause in his teaching, and he asks Jesus to um, help him address this matter of personal injustice that's been committed against him. Uh, he wants Jesus to make it right. Now, it was a very common thing for people to ask rabbis like Jesus, teachers, they would bring to him these various legal disputes um, to adjudicate them. And most likely, you have this younger brother, uh, upon the death of his father, being denied kind of a fair distribution of his father's inheritance, right? Um, so there's really nothing morally wrong uh, about what this man requests, right? It's a very reasonable request. 
aside from maybe the timing of his request. However, Jesus uses this request to make a very important point about the kingdom and the priority of the kingdom. And he says, he says this, man, who made me judge and arbiter over you? Who made me judge and arbiter? Now, here's the irony. We all know that Jesus, he is the judge, right? He is the arbitrator. He is the Lord that judges all things. So when Jesus says, who made me the judge and arbitrator over you? He's not saying, I, this is, yeah, this is beyond my pay grade. That's not what Jesus is saying. He's not saying I'm incapable of doing this. What he's saying is this. If I were to render judgment for you in this matter, I would be validating your priorities in life and how you have ordered them. And your priorities are not right. Your priorities are off. They need to be ordered to the kingdom of God. See, nothing, nothing reveals the true estate of our lives' priorities uh, like the things that cause us grievance, personal grievance and injustice. I have a couple of neighbors, elderly neighbors, um, that have been in the neighborhood for a long time, and they have a decades-long feud uh, between them uh, over their property line um, in terms of, like, encroachment. And, you know, and they've even sued one another in court, I discovered, uh, over things like accusations of killing bushes or damaging fences and decks, right? I have a very good relationship with both of them, but whenever I'm with, often when I'm with them, I hear them complaining about the other one. And, uh, you know, it's, it's uh, I always come away from those conversations shaking my head and just thinking, man, um, how small is your life and insignificant that this causes you so much pain? Um, they seem to have missed the point of life and expend so much emotional energy on disliking and even hating um, other people. Now, you know, most of us are not as kind of petty or small or shallow as, as my neighbors are, but I think that we're prone. We're prone, just like this man, who, who has a legitimate concern to letting personal grievances and, and pers a sense of personal injustice to a, a us or our reputation to lose sight of the bigger picture of what really matters in life. Um, having been a pastor now for over 10 years, <laughs> I have, I just lose count of the number of times um, I have seen an, an obsession over addressing a personal grievance or injustice within the church um, that has led to just sabotaging all kinds of great, fruitful kingdom ministry work. I mean, I just, I can't even tell you how much ministry in the life of the church is blown up and sabotaged because we prioritize our own sort of issues. And we just lose perspective on what really matters. See, in calling us to the kingdom of God first, Jesus is calling us to a different way of life, not like that of the nations. He's calling us to have a kingdom-sized perspective in life that has the right priorities, that values the things that matter most. And when we let that kingdom of God perspective be the frame, it has a way of putting all the other things in place especially personal grievances and, and senses of injustice. And, and I'm not discounting the importance of working through and that there's real wrongs that we do against each other. Um, but these things tend to become disproportionately large when we have a very small kingdom vision. But the reality is, is when you have a big picture, when you have a kingdom vision of your life and of the life of the church, 
these issues, so many of the issues in our life become much easier things to manage and to work through and not hung up on. They get smaller. So having the right priorities is really where having a kingdom vision begins. But having those priorities set according to the kingdom requires more than simply visualizing the kingdom of God or kind of perspective taking. These are important things. But it requires having the right kind of heart. It requires having a kingdom heart. A kingdom of God heart. Or kingdom heartedness. And that really is the focus of Jesus' teaching in this text. Um, we need to have kingdom of God hearts. And the reason is this, is that the priorities of our life are really a flow out of our hearts. I mean, that's what Jesus says here. This is the way he concludes the whole passage. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Or to put it in the language I'm using, where your priorities in life are, there your heart will be also. Again, if you want to do an audit of your priorities in life, ask this question, what are the things I love? What are the things that are really important to me? What are the things that I treasure? Those are the things that set your priorities of your life and shape your heart. And what Jesus wants us to know here, and what he sees in this man, because he's Jesus, is he discerns that this man's heart, it's not just that he has bad priorities, it's he's got a bad heart. He's got a wrong heart. And what Jesus says to him, um, and he warns the man, take care and he's speaking to the whole crowd, take care and be on guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Now, here we have that word covet again, or covetousness. It's, it's also translated greed in different translations, but again, I think the word, it's easy for us to kind of dismiss greed, right? That's, that's for Wall Street bankers, and that's for celebrities, and, and people who are obsessed with nice things. But greed... Or, or this word that's used for greed here, it, it gets at something way more fundamental um, that all of us have a problem with, which is we have this unruly and this disordered desire in our relationship to material things. Greed is an excessive concern uh, or uh, overly zealous attachment to the material conditions of our life. And when I say material things, I don't just mean stuff, houses and cars and nice things. I mean the stuff of life, careers, um, lifestyles, um, you know, hobbies. These are material things. This is what Jesus is getting at. And according to Jesus, one of the most um, significant stumbling blocks in our life to a kingdom-centered life is material things. And in order to do, he kind of gets at uh, laying this bare in this parable. And this is kind of where I want to focus the rest of our attention this morning. Through this parable of the rich fool, what Jesus does, he sort of lays bare the problem of a covetous heart and where it leads. And I I want to read this parable to you again and get you thinking about it. And so, and he said to them, he told them a parable saying, the land of a rich man produced plentiful and he thought to himself, what shall I do? for I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you. 
and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. If there is ever a parable that captures the ethos and spiritual sickness of our culture, I think it is this parable. Um, this is a parable about the spiritual dangers of materialism. Um, now, when you hear that word materialism, again, I, we tend to say, well, I'm not a materialist. You know, I don't have enough money to be a materialist. Or I'm not driven by money. That just doesn't what drives my life. Or I hate shopping. How could I be a materialist? But I want you to understand here is that materialism is much more subtle than just wanting to be rich or famous or wanting a lot of nice stuff and comfort. Um, there's a lot of different ways that we can become materialists, but the spiritual consequences and effects of materialism in my life, I think, are the same. And the effect is this. It is to subvert and to undermine and to deaden our desire and longing for God. That, that is, at the end of the day, what materialism does. It sort of just takes God out of our life, our sense of need. If I could, uh, reflecting back on our pandemic experience, um, as a pastor, having gone through the whole of it, barely, um, I remember in the first maybe two months, three months maybe, there was a sense of spiritual awakening and attunement and and, and a, a sense of fragility, and I, I, I felt like a lot of people, a lot of people were tuning into church online, and I had lots of family members that are not Christian tuning into our services, and, and I thought, wow, this is, I mean, there's a lot of opportunity here. But I would say that began to wear off as the pandemic went on, and actually I think that we're at the opposite end now, which is I've, I've noticed, and it's evident in the life of our church, is that um, there's a way in which I think pandemic living, we learned to double down in our materialism. We stayed home, we watched church online, we ordered everything from Amazon. We really learned to be comforted by our material things. We ate a lot, we did a lot of cooking, and there is a sense in which I think this materialism sort of just took over us to where we just, well, we managed this pandemic without God. You know, there's some scary moments, but we figured it out. And I see that, and I feel that in this congregation, and, and Christians, this, I don't know, church is less important. Being with the body of Christ is not a priority. I, there's just not a sense of, like, I really need, and, you know, we've got, for the most of the people in this church at least, we didn't get poor during the pandemic. If anything, we got richer. We got all this stimulus money. We didn't spend as much money on vacations and travel. And again, so, so again, the effect, though, is the end effect of materialism is always to deaden and subvert our sense of deep need and longing and desire for God. What's interesting about this parable is that Jesus does not paint this man uh, in the parable as a kind of crooked capitalist, as uh, seeking to exploit the poor or get rich and increase his profit mar margins through dishonesty or graft. Um, he never says, I mean, if you, if you read this parable in a different context, you might, this man might be praiseworthy for his forward thinking entrepreneurship, right? He's got this surplus of grain. What's he going to do with it? Well, I can build some more barns, right? I can, I, you know, in other contexts, we can see him as being a model. And Jesus never calls him a wicked man. So when you read this, don't think, oh, this is, this is like, a, you, know, um, you know, a crooked capitalist. What Jesus calls him is he calls him a fool. He calls him a fool. 
And the chief mark of being a fool is to be somebody who is out of touch with the true nature of reality. That's what it means to be a fool. It's to be out of touch with the true nature of reality. Um, the rich fool makes um, four assumptions that I think we today are prone to make in our kind of culture of materialism. And so I want to just want to identify these real quickly, or as quickly as I can. The first flawed assumption this man makes is that he assumes that his life and his wealth belong to him. My life is my own, to do with as I want and as I see fit. It belongs to me. Um, so, and I mean, again, my life is my own, and by extension, all the things I have are my own, whether it's my money, uh, whether it's my time, whether it's my talent. And again, this is an unquestioned assumption in our world, right? My life is my own, my things are my own, my talent is my own, to spend and use how I see fit. But Jesus says this is to be out of touch with reality. God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So uh, that's the first fatal assumption the man makes, is he, he assumes that his life is his own and his things are his own. The second one is that he assumes um, that he assumes just himself. <laughs> he's, he's, a, he's what we would call an individualist. He only thinks about his own life and his own wealth in terms of how it benefits him. Right? And you see this, and he has, there's a lot of self-talk in this parable. You know, he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I, you know, for I have nowhere to store my crops. And he says, and I will do this, and I will say to my soul this. Right? He's only thinking in terms of himself. You don't get this, a sense that he's in conversation with friends or family or community. He's only thinking of himself. The third thing he does, the third flawed assumption he makes, is that he believes that he can find ultimate happiness and fulfillment in his things. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat drink, and be merry. This, I think, is one of the most subtle and deadly assumptions that our culture kind of teaches us, not explicitly, but, but through just the whole curriculum of being consumers in a consumer culture, is this idea that if I just get the right combination in life of, of career, of relationship and family, of, of social status, of wealth, of the right hobbies, if I, if I can just pursue these and I can just get the right configuration, I will be happy. I will be ultimately satisfied in life. But again, this is to be out of touch with reality as it really is. And I think what's so deadly about this is um, we, most people spend their entire lives with a, a mental image of what will make them happy, and it takes almost a lifetime to achieve it. And by the time you're at the end of your life and maybe you get what you thought you were looking for and you realize it doesn't really give you what you were looking for, it's already too late. <laughs> and then God comes and says, fool, <laughs> your life, I want it back. These things are never able ultimately to give us what we're looking for. And then the, the so the, the last point is this, on this. Um, the last uh, assumption this man makes is, is, uh, is the absence of the presence and reality of God in his life, right? I would call this just practical atheism. He's forgetful of God. I mean, God shows up nowhere in his self-talk. 
or in his reflection, um, he gave no thought to it. Now, I'm sure if you were to ask this man, do you believe in God? He's like, oh, absolutely, I believe in God. Are you a follower? Yes, absolutely. I'm, you know, he wasn't a theoretical atheist. He, he was probably, he's just a practical atheist, right? He didn't really need God. He didn't need to depend upon God. He thought of his own lives and possessions, and, you know, he could manage it without God. Um, you know, polling data in the United States is that even though our country is becoming more secular and, and, and that, that belief in God in the United States is still very, very high compared to other uh, Western Northern Hemisphere countries. But if you were able to cal- calculate belief in God um, in, a, in terms of lifestyle that Jesus is talking about here, I suspect that uh, belief in God would be uh, very low. <laughs> because, again, our, our world and our culture teaches us to be basically practical atheists. We live our lives as if God doesn't really exist. We don't have time for God. You know, we have less and less time. We have less and less of a source of real need for God and awareness of God. And so Jesus, what he does here is he, he wants this way of thinking and living, like the rich fool, is set in sharp contrast to seeking the kingdom of God. And I love the positive imagery and, and word that Jesus uses to, to describe kingdom of God spirituality. And it is this. It is to be rich towards God, to be rich towards God. That's what it means to seek the kingdom. And so what does that mean exactly? It's really the opposite of what the rich fool does. And so let me indulge me here to go through these four, um, looking at a positive expression of them. To be rich towards God, rather than thinking that you own your life and your life is your own, means that you're a steward of your life, that your life is on loan from God, that your time and that your money and your talents is, is a gift to be stewarded for the sake of of loving God and loving your neighbor to be stewarded for the sake of the kingdom. We are stewards of what God has given us. And and from this idea follows this next point, which is that to be rich towards God as a steward is to take all of our resources, resources in service of God's kingdom. But what that means practically speaking is that we see our lives as Um, serving others, right? A life of service. That's the second, that's part of what it means to be rich towards God, is to have a life of servants, of loving other people, especially the poor, especially the poor. Um, When you are rich towards God, you have a specially attuned heart and sensitivity to the poor, to those who are in need. St. Augustine, in a sermon on this text, has this beautiful line about the rich fool. He says, he did not realize that the bellies of the poor were a much safer storeroom than his barns. He did not realize that the bellies of the poor were a much better storehouse than his barns. To be rich towards God is to be aware of the needs of the poor and those, um, and to seek to serve and to love them. And to devote your life to serving others, of loving others, beyond just your immediate family, um, is what Jesus calls us to. And so I guess I would just pose that question. I mean, is your life a life of service? I mean, to have a kingdom life is to have a life of service. And it it doesn't mean you have to quit your job and become a pastor or a missionary or devote your life to, to, um, you know, working in a nonprofit. Those are great things. But there's ways that all of us, no matter what our station in life, have opportunities to love and care for people that are not just our own family, 
for those in need. So, life of service and stewardship. But the third thing to be rich towards God is to understand that nothing in this life can ever satisfy but God. It's such a simple, basic point. Nothing in this life will ever deliver to you the happiness and the satisfaction that you want except God and God alone. No matter how beautiful your marriage, no matter how great your job, no matter how happy you are um, with all the things at the end of the day, it will never, ever give you all that you were created for. You're created for God, and He wants you. And that leads us to the last, the last uh, point of what it means to be rich towards God. The last mark of a life that is rich towards God is, is a life of worship. It is a life of worship. It's a life of worship and po- personal devotion. I mean, it's worship on Sunday morning like this. You gather with God's people in person and you worship. But it also has to do with just your li- a life of prayer and devotion through the days and weeks of your life. And, and these, but it's more than that too, right? When those things are true in our life, then worship can then begin to take all the areas of our life. And we come back to that question I asked in the beginning, which is, what would it mean, uh, what would it mean for the kingdom of God to come into my marriage, into my workplace, into my hobbies, into my neighborhood, into all these nooks and crannies of my life? And when I worship, when I, when I have a life of devotion, there's, there's a, our, our, our hearts and our imaginations begin to see the different ways that God's ruling presence can come in and take over. And when we live according to that, that is worship. Jesus promises us that when we live this way, when we, we um, have a kingdom spirituality, and we make seeking his kingdom the highest priorities, our life will be marked by the absence of anxiety. Striving for the things of this world creates all kinds of stress and worry and anxiety. I mean, that's, that's the thing you need to see here, right? Jesus is is saying some some difficult things for us to hear, but if you obey them, and if you do them, the fruit of that is actually a life without anxiety and fear and insecurity. Because when we uh, pursue these things, as Jesus says, in the way of the world, the natural byproduct all the time is stress, anxiety, fear, striving. But the striving and the seeking of the kingdom is a different thing altogether. And the fruit of that is peace, security, um, contentment, and being okay. An ability to be able to, to sleep at night and to rest deep in your soul. And the reason is this. The kingdom of God is not something you have to earn. The kingdom of God is not something you have to earn and it is not something you have to build or bring about. See, When you think about the way of the world, we're building our own little kingdoms. We're trying to realize. We're trying to make it happen. We're trying to establish it. And it's work, and it creates stress and anxiety. But the kingdom of God is a gift. And I love what Jesus says here. I mean, the kingdom of God is a grace-centered life. Jesus says this, fear not, little flock, fear not. Don't worry. Stop being so anxious. It is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. He will take care of all those those real needs, those material, physical needs, he'll take care of them. Don't worry. Stop stressing out. Serve the Lord and rest. For your God, Father's good pleasure is to give you the kingdom. 
Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we pray that you would help us to find rest and peace in you. Our lives can become so busy, so stressed, so anxiety-filled. Help us to step back and to see our lives and to examine them in the light of your kingdom. And we pray that you would do that difficult work of reordering our hearts and reforming and transforming them to desire you and to desire to love the things that you love. And so we pray uh, for your kingdom to come, uh, not just in our hearts, Lord, but in this world as well. In the name of Jesus, amen.